Dr. Rajat Vasudev Murthy is an assistant professor at Amrita School of Engineering, Amrita University, Bangalore campus, in the ECE department. He has a PhD from the Department of Electrical Communication Engineering, IISC, Indian Institute of Science, Bangalore. He is also a postdoc from the Pennsylvania State University, State College, USA. He is a keen student of Samskritam and Vedanta and actively involves himself in related learning and propagation activities. Over to you, Doctor. Namaste. Uh, uh, after the wonderful talk by Dr. Elst, I think some of the points will be common, so maybe I can go quickly over them. So this is the title of the talk, Vedic uh, Roots of Buddhism. Uh, the brief outline is, I will present the motivation for this work, and then uh, present very briefly the evolution of early Buddhism, Pollock's views, and then a discussion on them, and then finally conclude. So as we, in, we have been hearing from yesterday, we need to understand our uh, itihasa or history, or I don't know if we should translate it as histor historiography properly, and then also uh, improve our understanding of the chronology of ancient India. And we want to impress upon ourselves and youngsters about the long tradition of thinkers in all fields of uh, intellectual endeavor, so that uh, we develop a kind of respect and reverence for the great heritage, great intellectual heritage which we have in all fields of uh, learning, be it grammar, or music, or all kinds of uh, uh, all areas, basically. Uh, interestingly, I came across this uh, quote from Max Muller in his book, uh, History of Ancient Sanskrit Literature, wherein he says that the uh, Indian people have given all their practical uh, uh, energies into the inward life, so much so that there is no, India has no place in the political history of the world. I just want you to juxtapose this with what Pollock tries to do with his uh, political philology thesis. So on to the uh, history of early Buddhism. So uh, immediately after the Paradini Nirvana of the Buddha, he doesn't uh, uh, appoint anybody as the leader of the Sangha which is created. So under the leader who is there, under the senior most person who is there at that time, the first Buddhist council is uh, convened at Rajagriha, which is now called Rajgir. And where the Dharma and Vinaya were uh, kind of, maybe started to be written down. In the second Buddhist council, which happens 100 years later during uh, Kalashoka, this uh, reference comes in the Rajatarangini, Kalhana's Rajatarangini. So this person is different from the Ashoka of the Mauryan dynasty. So there, uh, some uh, disputes of the Vinaya were being settled, but then there was a major split in the Sangha which came up. And they split into Eastern and Western groups called the uh, Mahasanganikas and the Savaravadans. And the Tripitikas, as we know them today, slowly start to take uh, shape. And then, because of the split in the Sangha, the third Buddhist council, the two Sanghas meet separately. The eastern one at Pal Pataliputra during the reign of Ashoka, and the western one at Kanishka. So, all I'm trying to do here is to show that Buddhism is not one you know, linear, kind of very well-defined thing which Pollock tries to portray. I'm just trying to show how the Buddhism has evolved over time. And the Kathavattu says that at one point of time, the Buddhist Sangha has split into almost as many as 18 subgroups. Okay, uh, so briefly, um, the main philosophies, as you know, classically, we have uh, 12 philosophies in the Indian uh, classical philosophy system. Six of them are called Astika, because they accept the Veda as the Pramana, and six, Nastika. 
among the Nastika philosophies or the heterodox philosophies, four are uh, going under the name of Buddhism, which is Sautrantika, Vaibhashika, Yogachara and Madhimika. The first two go under the subtitle of Theravada or Hinayana, and the second two or the last two under the Mahayana. So one of our friends has a way of uh, kind of oversimplifying and putting it in a way that we can understand. So let's say we have an object and then I cognize this object. So for simplicity, I say there is an object and there is mind. So you could have four possibilities here that you could say that the object and the mind are independent realities, which will be, I think, Sautrantika, or you could deny the independent existence of both, which will be nihilism or uh, Shunyavada or Madhyamika. And intermediate, one could be dependent on the other. So you have two possibilities there. So essentially what I'm trying to say is, so based on the Buddha's teachings, they have kind of exhausted the complete possibility taking mind and matter. That's what I want to say. So in this context, we may get a question, what did the Buddha actually say? What is clear is that he spoke about the Four Noble Truths, which is very famous, and the Eightfold Path. And then, uh, most importantly, the Middle Path, because he came from a palatial, from a kingly royal family. So he had the opportunity of uh, indulging in uh, sense pleasures, but he didn't do that, but went on the other extreme of self-mortification and found that that also really didn't help him. And finally, he um, discovered the truth through this middle path, and this is what he propagated later on. So given that there is this uh, huge, uh, um, uh, what should we say, uh, divergence in the philosophies of Buddhism, uh, Mysore Hirana opines that although the canonical literature, most of it was told by the Buddha, there is no way of knowing what exactly, what portions were exactly told by him. And Mukherjee opines that uh, Buddha claimed that he discovered a path to salvation from the uh, mundane existence of uh, sorrow, etc. And then he preached it to all, but then he left the question of ultimate reality open. So that is why Buddhists who came later, they adhered to logic in a very strong manner and they solved this problem in all possible ways and that is how we have so many diverging philosophies. Okay, so Buddhism vis-a-vis -vis the Veda. Commonalities, of course, very famous, Karmaniyati, Punarjanma, I forgot to mention Nirvana or Moksha concept here. And then uh, blind ritualism is criticized. I put it here because we find such statements in the Upanishads and the Gita. Gita is very famous. Uh, uh, Krishna says, Traigunya Vishaya Veda, Nistraigunya Bhavarjuna. And even in the Upanishads, you can find out Nakarmana, Naprajaya, etc. Of course, there are a few differences as well. Uh, most importantly being the Buddhists reject the Shabda Pramana of the Veda. So in some sense you could say that uh, they place emphasis on self-effort, whereas in the Upanishads and Gita, the instruction is always that you should go to a guru. The Upanishads say you should go to a Shrotriya guru and then learn from him. Similarly, the Gita, Tadviddi, Pranipatena, Pariprasna, Sevaya, etc. And then uh, in the Upanishadic uh, teaching, uh, we find that it was not given to everybody. For example, in the Prashna Upanishad, when six people approach uh, Pipalad Rishi, the primary requisite he puts them is to, is to ask them to stay one year in the ashrama. After that only you ask your questions and if I know, I'll answer. Similarly, in another Upanishad, Indra is made to undergo tapas for more than 100 years. But this thing we don't find in Buddhism. It is almost like everybody is welcome, everybody is taught, everybody is preach. The, these people are going out and then preaching, almost. Anyway, so this leads to uh, limitations of Buddhism, uh, which as uh, Dr. Elst was pointing out, Buddhism, at least in the later stages, it became uh, thriving under royal patronage and then wealthy people. So uh, slowly, uh, the hold on the masses was getting weaker and weaker. 
And then, um, as we see in the Upanishads and the Gita, there is a, a gradual um, structure wherein a person goes from a householder life to being a vanaprasthi, to a sannyasa, in a very graded man manner. But Buddhism, they kind of jump the gun and say nirvana is for everybody and everybody can achieve it. That is the only goal worth pursuing. And that is kind of uh, the dif difference or maybe in some sense limitation of Buddhism. So uh, what Pollock does in his paper talking about Buddhism is to invoke this uh, axial theory, which was propounded by Jaspers about six, seven decades uh, earlier. And then he talks about the capacity of human beings to reflect upon and to give expression to an image of the world which is different from how we perceive it here and now. But then Pollock strangely avoids or doesn't get into any epistemological discussion as to how this could happen. But then he just uh, goes ahead with this. And then uh, Jaspers talks about the genesis of a people who have a common, uh, they think of themselves as a common people with a common culture, etc. And then uh, Jaspers again mentions a transition from mythology to more uh, being rational, logic, etc. Although Pollock uh, does not agree with any spatio-temporal causality or this kind of uh, putting it at one time frame, which Jaspers does, but still Pollock wants to invoke this axial age and then put Buddhism into this uh, framework. But strangely, again, Pollock is not, uh, is going to reject that in the context of India that there was a formation of a common people. And he says, if you want to get uh, a sense of common people in India, you should come to the 20th century. Maybe he means the independence, or at least the struggle for independence, maybe. And then there are other scholars like Eisenthal and uh, Histerman who uh, talk about even later Vedic or the revival of the Vedic uh, thought as an axial age, but then Pollock dismisses them. But he is trying to uh, reinforce Buddhism as an axial age by saying it, is, it brings in a revolution in uh, reflexivity, historicity, and agentiality. So uh, I'll just uh, briefly go over a few points which Pollock uh, puts forth to uh, justify his thesis that Buddhism is an axial age, mainly the authorlessness and ahistoricity of the Veda, and then social reform, which is uh, supposedly said to have brought in, a transvaluation of Yagni and Atma uh, mainly, and then the language which he used to uh, propagate his teachings. So Aparishayatva, it's a kind of a deep concept, but then Pollock directly translates it as authorlessness, and moreover says that the Vedas lack a human or a divine author. This is something which I didn't understand, because the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad clearly states, Asya mahato bhutasya nishvasita metad yad rigvedo yajurvedo samavedo hyatarvangirasa. Even in the Brahma Sutra, we can find Shastra Yunitvat. So here, I don't know if you can not call this as a divine origin of the Veda. That is not clear to me, so maybe if, uh, I need to clarify it with what the Mimamsaka position is actually. And even if the Mimamsa were to say so, there are other darshanas, such as the Nyaya darshana, who say that Veda is actually Paurushaya. So I don't understand why entire Indian intellectual class has to be only defined by the Mimamsa as a darshana, because we have other darshanas which have differing opinions on them. And then Pollock says that uh, this Aparushayatva or the authorlessness of the Veda is a pretty strange claim which nobody would try to do unless you are trying to react to the Buddhist criticism of the Veda. Now this is really strange because, in fact, uh, from the previous slide, we noted that Buddhism itself had many philosophies and Mysore Hiranyana point out that maybe Buddhism started as a religion but the Buddhists wanted to 
defend themselves against the philosophy based on the Veda and the Jaina philosophies and therefore later on they try to become philosophies. So Pollock has kind of uh, inverted the chronology here. And again, uh, if you look at the Brahma Sutras, you can find an explicit discussion on the Sankhya Yoga, etc., which are mentioned by name too, but he doesn't directly discuss Buddhism or Jainism. So it is up to the Bhashyakaras like Shankaracharya and others who will take up portions where uh, Brahma Sutra is discussing Nastika philosophies and in those commentaries they have to uh, respond to Buddhism, Jainism, etc. And even interestingly, Jaimini again quotes Badrayana. So here what I'm trying to say is that Jaimini Sutra and Brahma Sutra predate Buddhism and Jainism and therefore this argument of Pollock that this idea of Mimamsa is trying to react to Buddhism doesn't hold water. And if you could say again that this is the idiosyncrasy of Purva Mimamsa because they are talking about authorlessness, uh, I feel there are other uh, idiosyncrasies of Purva Mimamsa as a darshana. For example, they talk of non-perception as being a valid pramana and then they don't accept that the universe has a beginning and an end. This is pretty strange to me because the Upanishads are pretty clear about it. They say, yato vaimani bhutani jayante, etc. And uh, another interesting thing is uh, the tradition holds Veda as a pramana. So yesterday also we discussed in the Vakyata Sabha, etc. Which uh, cannot be, in matters which cannot be arrived at by Pratyaksha and Anumana, Veda is a pramana. But Pollock, he kind of does an inversion here. He says, if you cannot perceive nor infer about something, or rather, let me put it this way, whatever you can perceive or infer, that is rational. And if you can't do that, it is irrational. So here our tradition is talking about something which is transcending rationality, but then Pollock is inverting and calling it irrational, and then almost comparing it with uh, Tertullian logic, which says, it, you should believe it because it is absurd, or you should believe it because it is improbable, which I feel it's completely wrong. And interestingly, if you just think about it, we hold the Veda as a pramana, just like eyes or ears or a pramana. So if I ask you the question, who made the eye? Is it a human author or a divine author? I think the same answer will hold for the Veda too. I mean, it's, it's something of my feeling which I have learned from my gurus. Anyway, uh, a historicity. Again, uh, the tradition holds Vedic statements to be timeless truths. Here, interestingly, uh, Pollock says that the Vedic corpus is always trying to escape a spatial temporal framework, whereas the Buddhist uh, texts are pretty emphatic about their historicity. But then Agarwala, in his analysis of the Panini Sutras, he points out that there is a particular sutra where Panini explicitly says that Yajnavalkya was either a later Rishi or the portions which are uh, uh, kind of revealed to him came later. There is one sutra to this effect which you can find. Uh, I don't remember the exact sutra right now, but then we can always find it. And of course, there are some studies on the Rig Veda uh, which people have done a historical analysis like Talagiri, maybe Subhash Kak has a book as well. And uh, so, yeah, so again, uh, on the Buddhist side, when you say that you have a very clear uh, time, place, audience, etc., that is also not very true because as we saw, the Tripitikas have evolved over time, uh, about uh, 200, 300 years, and then there is a lot of divergence in the Buddhist philosophies too. Okay, uh, on the social aspect, uh, so this three, uh, the religious Sangha, uh, community of Upasakas, and then democratically um, propagating the doctrine, Agarwal again points out with Panini, uh, maybe elaborate, add a caveat about Panini. So by looking at Panini Sutras, it is pretty clear, and the tradition also holds this opinion that Panini predates Buddha. 
or even if he is contemporary of Buddha, there is no uh, this much uh, disruption which Pollock claims that Buddhism brought in is apparently not clear with Panini Sutras. So I kind of presume that Panini is predating Buddha. But Panini talks about monarchy, a political republic, and also a religious Sangha. So these are the terms which Panini uses. And then uh, it's also clear that the Shramana sects like Ajivikas, Anuvadins, Jains, etc., which predate the Buddha, they were also having similar structure. They were also rejecting the authority of the Veda. They had a Sangha, a religious Sangha, and a community of Upasakas, etc. And an, an, another interesting thing is while the Mimamsa says that everybody doesn't have Adhikara for Veda, Brahma Sutra very emphatically makes it clear that everybody has Adhikara for Vedanta. And then in the commentary, we have examples of Vidura, Dharmavyada, who are uh, uh, respected as wise men, although apparently they didn't have uh, Adhikara for Veda. So this is something which is already there in the Vedantic tradition. And then Pollock says that a social stir was created in the Vedic society, wherein people assumed that roles in society are fixed by births. But then it's not true, because in the Upanishads itself, we see that Kshatriyas have actually taught Brahma Vidya to Brahmins. And uh, Buddha or Mahavira were not the only Kshatriyas to teach. Okay, uh, so Paula talks about yajna and uh, negation of atma and says that Buddhists have changed the meaning of yajna and made it in a diff drastically different context where Paula quotes the uh, one sutta and then says a brahmana is being dissuaded from uh, making a blood sacrifice and then doing some meditation in a non-violent way. But then the Maharayana Upanishad talks about a yajna which is done by, let's say, a, a vanaprasthi who doesn't have a wife staying with him or he doesn't have the resources to buy uh, ghee or to compensate priests. So he says, Tasya, Shraddha, Patni, Kama, Ajim, uh, Manyuf, Pashu. Right? All the priests are his own speech, the very breath, the eye, etc. And in the Gita, again, we have a lot of yajnas which are mentioned, Dravya yajna, Tapo yajna, Jnana yajna, etc. And then Krishna says, Yajnanam Japa yajnaspi. So again, in the negation of Atma, Again, here it is interesting because Pollock says, Atma is negated, so therefore the Buddhists are cancelling all Upanishadic thought. Maybe in a way he is accepting that the Upanishads come prior to Buddha, which is a plus point. But then, uh, it's pointed out by Bhattacharya that uh, the uh, whole idea of Buddhism and of the Upanishads too, is to root out desire, basically. So the path Buddha takes is to say that neither the subject nor the object of desire exist. Subject meaning the desirer. Whereas the Upanishad uh, teaches that both the desirer and the object of desire is not separated from Brahman. And therefore, finally the annihilation of desire and ultimate uh, ananda is the goal of both. Anyway, I think language we have uh, discussed quite elaborately. I'll just mention that uh, based on the Vinaya Pitaka, Bapat points out that Buddha had permitted uh, his followers to use whatever language was uh, convenient to be used to propagate the doctrine. And then as we saw that the Sangha had split into Mahasanghanikas and these Thaviravadans. And in the western, northwestern part of India, Sanskrit was more used by, more in vogue. So people there used Sanskrit to propagate the Buddhist doctrine. And then in the eastern part, the Magadha and the Anga, there the local Prakrit were more in vogue. So the people used that. So it looks like they were more pragmatic in the use of language rather than trying to reject some esoteric language theory as Pollock is trying to cook up. Um, I don't know if I should mention this, but then I found this quotation in his Max Muller's book on the history of Sanskrit literature, 
wherein he's trying to say that you know buddhism maybe is an intermediate it's paving the way for christian conversion to christianity and then says that buddhism was pretty bitter uh, critic of uh, brahmanism or hinduism but that very fact proves that it's peculiarly indian so it's kind of all mixed up i don't know if this thread is anyway followed in i don't know if it's totally out of vogue or some people are undercurrent just following this anyway it's besides the point so in conclusion so our interest is in trying to understand the correct history and the chronology of indian civilization and the views of polak are presented here uh, especially in context with buddhism placing it with an axial age uh, context and some of the answers are given to those views and then it seems like polak is kind of uh, carefully cherry picking only certain points which suit his theory very conveniently and not paying uh, heed to the chronology and various differing viewpoints various darshanas which are uh, there based on the veda itself so we'll be happy to take any questions and thank you for this opportunity and this paper has been written um, in the understanding of the teaching of all my gurus so if there is anything correct in the presentation the credit goes to them thank you any questions sir as you mentioned aporushya means uh, authorlessness as per shandam palak but uh, in our uh, rigved and samvej ajurved all the vedas contain rishir darshanat or uh, rishi uh, on the mantra first time written uh, anushtup chanda or sugayatri so, so chanda and rishir uh, jagyavalkya rishi is also mentioned there so uh, there is no question of aporushya means authorlessness do not mean rishi have seen i think so please clear well this is a standard question so maybe i can give you a parallel from science so suppose let's say when newton discovers gravity you say that newton has discovered gravity and not invented so similarly these mantras are representative of eternal truths and the rishi is only discovering that or is putting that knowledge in words okay so is it Does it answer your no, question no, no, or? No, 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 no. She is asking a question that right? aporushayam. That's what we are. The Polak is telling aporushayam. So she is telling that is not aporushayam. Anyway, as per the Vedic tradition, we are following each and every mantras of Vedas, describing those uh, rishis' name. So how he is actually, uh, you know, questioning that aporushayam? Oh, that I don't that know. Is, I mean, that you have to ask Polak. But of course, uh, you can. There are people who have. Uh, opinions that the veda is paurushaya they are also there you can't uh, dismiss them straight away but uh, purva mimamsa and uttara mimamsa hold especially that the vedas are apaurushaya which means that the truths which are discovered or which are revealed by the veda can either be verified nor be contradicted by direct perception inference or the other pramanas which we have that is the understanding so about uh, the the Pollock's assertion about the Kutodanta Sutta, and you basically said that it's about the yagna and dissuading the Brahmin from eating meat and sacrifice and so on. But Pollock always uses the word sacrifice, 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 trying to kind of. Do you think it is to obfuscate the idea that the yagna doesn't really directly mean sacrifice in most the way certain, it's ex- expected in, in the fact, yeah, Abrahamic traditions? Yeah, sorry, uh, I should have mentioned it here. Yagna itself in the Vedic corpus will have multiple meanings. 
you know, Yajno Vai Vishnu is one of the statements in the Taittiriya. And even for Atma, in the Taittiriya Upanishad again, you'll have uh, Anyantaratma Pranamayaha, Anyantaratma Manomayaha. So each of these words will have multiple meanings in different contexts. So taking them as sacrifice itself is wrong in the first place. No, no. See, let's, let's be very clear. Whenever they are talking about sacrifices, those days, all, most of the Brahmins, uh, they were performing the Aupasana and then end of the Aupasana, it is ending up on a particular time, they have to go for Agnihotra. In the Agnihotra, very clearly, there are a lot of sacrifices. So, whenever there is any Western scholars, they are doing the research, the sacrifices will come. Yes, there were sacrifices. I'm let us accept no. There. Let us accept it. Let us not make there is no any sacrifices. There are sacrifices. There are see there are even in, in today's calculation, and an average one crore Brahmin family, if they are performing Vajibe Yajna, they have to do the sacrifices. That means all over India, one crore people if they are performing Vajibe Yajna once in a year, that means one crore uh, sacrifices are happened. Let us I'm accept that. that. I'm not there are sacrifices. I'm there is no any second meaning about it. That's an English mm. word. What is the Sanskrit word for sacrifice? No, no. The, in the, see, we are talking about sacrifices means we have to cut that. Let us see. That is that is what it is mentioned. Sacrifices. It is there. It is happening. Yeah, Rajat, uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Rajat. Uh, I have a question. So, Pollock presents uh, Buddhism as something revolutionary against Hinduism. Yeah. Now, what picture does the Jatakas present? I mean, the the idea of uh, bo the Bodhisattva isn't the Bodhisattva usually upper class in the Jatakas? Uh, I myself have not studied the Jatakas, but my presumption, I could be wrong, but is that. Uh, you know, the Hindu literature or the Vedic literature has a lot of Itihasa and Purana which backs up the Veda. So we have the dictum that Itihasa Purana Bhyam Vedam Samupa Brumhayat. So when you are trying, when Buddha is trying to create or Buddhists are trying to create a new religion, you need to have certain other uh, related texts which will, you know, you need to, maybe if you want to build temples or monasteries or those kind of things or occupy the masses, etc., you will need other literature which will need to come. So maybe my guess is that maybe. Uh, Inspired by the Itihasa Puranas, they were trying to create parallel literature. That is my taking, but... Um, okay. Please. Now about uh, sacrifices. Uh, maybe both you and I have, uh, well, not addressed one point. Of course, there are so many points to make, which is uh, the Buddha's own explicit claim, which also many outsiders have, even without much knowledge, nevertheless assumed, that he wanted to revive what he imagined to be the original Veda. You know, as exemplified, for example, by the word Arya. You know, Arya meaning really Vedic. And so you see among, about sacrifices, he says explicitly that the original Brahmins in the original Vedic times, they did not bring blood sacrifices. Maybe sacrifices, but they didn't kill buffaloes or whatever. Um, so maybe you have more to say about this connection with, you know, back to the Vedic roots. Right. So even in the recent times, Arya Samaj, they try to propagate this kind of an idea. But uh, all I'm trying to say here is, Pollock's uh, presentation is that the Buddhists are trying to do a transvaluation of Vedic ideas. 
All I'm saying is it is also there in the Veda. That's all I'm showing. So this, uh, you know, doing yajna in a non-violent way, if I quote unquote, if you could do that, it is already there in the Mahanarayana Upanishad. That's all I'm saying. So it is not a contribution of Buddhism which they are trying to bring in. That's what I'm saying. To help me, you can do two things. You can go to the subscribe button on my YouTube and subscribe. We need more subscribers there. Uh, secondly, I get lots of emails on people saying, how do we donate? How can we help you? Uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button. You can donate in dollars. There are different ways mentioned. If you want to donate in rupees, there is a column called uh, Infinity Foundation India and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in India.